I had never heard of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. It's a place for spinal cord injuries. In fact, I never heard of the place till a friend of mine went to his grandson's basketball game, fell down in this big arena, leaving the arena, and broke his neck. Then his family scoured the earth. Where can we go for a spinal cord injury? And they unearthed the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, a world-class place. He went down with paralysis and walked out months later and came home. That, for me, and iconically, it will always be associated as a place where you go if you have a spinal cord injury. If you've fallen down and injured yourself, go to that place because you can be restored there. Now, this morning, we have five verses in this epistle to the Galatians that talks about restoration. It talks about where you go to be restored. Of all places, the Apostle Paul suggests you go to church. Now, here's my question. Is that the first place that would be iconically identified by the fallen as the place to go in order to get up and go forward? Great churches are places of restoration, and the Apostle Paul talks about that. Of course... Some places have a reputation that would give rise to the cynics, quote, the family of God is the only army in the world that shoots its wounded. By the way, what do we do with our wounded? And would we have a famous reputation, not unlike the Shepherd Center, for a place that if you fall down, you can go to Calvary. And the grace of God and the people of God will pick you up and walk forward. Come with me to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Let me read these great verses to you and anticipate this challenge this morning. Is our first thought to go to God's family, the church, to find healing, comfort, and restoration? What if God had called Graceland to be a place of gospel hope and transformation? Is this us at Calvary? And you fall down and get up here? Who are we really at Calvary? Who has God called us to be? Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Hear the word of the Lord. Now let's go two different directions this morning. In first, identifying a culture of legalism, which is critical and judgmental, let's call this culture Harshland. Paul contrasts Harshland 
with Graceland. That's where we'll go secondly is unpack Graceland. And then we will ask ourselves, what kind of a place is Calvary? To come here? To fall down? Can you get up here at Calvary? I mean, what is this? Is this harsh land or is this Graceland? What is harsh land like? What is Graceland like? Let's first go to harsh land. Legalism is home to three things. Pride, judgment, and provocation. Look at verse 26. This is how they're relating in Galatia. Paul's writing saying, no, 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 you've got this wrong. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. One of the things that law keeping does is it makes us proud. We pat ourselves on the back and we say, yeah, boy, I'm doing really good. And as we're patting ourselves on the back, it becomes very easy for us in keeping the law as a benchmark for uh, getting brownie points with God. He must feel better about me. And oh, by the way, I keep the law better than you do. Uh, I, I give myself another pat there. And, and, and you have conceit. Uh, then, then that leads to provocation. Uh, rather than provoking one another to love and good works, it provokes enmity between people who in their conceit, remember the wisdom literature says only by Pride comes contention. So you have a contentious place. Uh, now, then he says, envying one another. See, Eric, what's going on? Those 14 things, the lifestyle driven by the flesh, that he's talked about in verse 19, 20, and 21, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Living by the flesh creates a way of relating that becomes very harsh. And they were living according to the flesh, trying to bring their flesh up to the law and say, yeah, I can obey the law. God will accept me because I am obeying the law. Now, there are three aspects of legalism's culture that shows up here. Uh, our relationships get all gummed up with the flesh. The result is verse 26. The atmosphere is so harsh. Uh, now, let's look. Legalists, the first aspect of legalism's culture is legalists judge others as inferior to themselves. That's what's going on in verse 6. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You see, quite opposite of the spiritual who's down there reaching realizing their own vulnerability it's the legalist who's saying you know what i can't believe that person did that a bunch of legalists a bunch of pharisees dropped that lady caught in adultery right at jesus feet kathy read it this morning john 8 it's fascinating how jesus deals with her that atmosphere is so harsh in that circle until jesus imposes his presence there they believe they are above falling. Look, this one's taken in adultery. Legalists think they can make themselves better by making others worse and pointing out their faults. Well, how do they make themselves better? They look at others and say, I'm, I'm better than that. That's a part, one aspect of the culture of legalism. It's in Galatians, and it was gumming up how they're relating. Look at verse 26 of chapter 5. Secondly, legalists deceive themselves with inflated views of themselves. Verse 3 is very fascinating. 
For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The assertion in the middle of verse is, hey, we are nothing before a God who is great and majestic and holy. Or as Luther said, we are all simply beggars before him. But we deceive ourselves into inflated view of themselves. If you think you live in a $650,000 home, that's great. But if you put it for sale and an appraiser comes in, they may appraise it at a completely different level. And we can have these grandiose perceptions of who we are. You know who we are before our Lord, who is holy. We are sinful, in need of his grace, which he has in abundance and is willing to share. But it's not until we recognize who we really are that the grace of God begins to lay hold of us. Legalists inflate, have inflated views of themselves. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know what a legalist is? A legalist, they're simply falls walking around waiting to happen in their pride. Verse 3, the third aspect of legalism's culture is legalists are more attentive to the faults of others than they are to the faults of themselves. Look at verse 4 and 5. What is stressed? What is being talked about? Let each one test his own work. How easy it is to look and see the faults of others. Yeah, I, I see you over there, boy. I'm better than that. Yeah, I see you too. Makes me feel so much better about myself. Yeah, boy, I'm, I'm above that. Dear ones, it is the humble person who knows the truth about his own heart, and he or she is not above anything. We can all ruin ourselves in indulgence. In 15 minutes in an afternoon this week, you can destroy the rest of your days. It's amazing how weak and frail we are in need of the grace of our Lord. Think of Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Jesus said it all so clearly. These are familiar verses. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see this speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's so easy to be petty and judgmental and critical, and it creates a culture that's so awful. It's harsh land. And nothing smokes out a legalist like how he responds to somebody who has fallen. It's the litmus test. How do we treat the fallen here at Calvary Baptist Church? One of my prayers for this message is for those of you who may be here with a longing heart, and you know more than anybody in the room, you've blown it. By the way, you need to know, I've blown it. And the grace of God, I love it first for myself, but I love it for others. And one of my prayers has been that hope might dawn in your heart that you could be right with God and go forward with joy, completely forgiven and putting the past behind you and walking forward on a higher plane. Has God brought you here for such purpose this morning? I want you to know he's reaching for you. I want you to know he loves you. 
And there's no place that you've gone that is too far away from his grace that is transformative. A grace described by the Apostle Paul as greater than all of our sin. Somehow in the legalist heart, there's a hidden glee when somebody falls. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm better than that. Yep. Now, verse 4 alludes to boasting. Boasting over his neighbor. I'm, I'm better than my neighbor. He, what he says is you need to boast about yourself. Uh, he uses a common maxim there for each one will have to bear his own load. Uh, pull your own weight. Be responsible for yourself. Here highlighting the necessity to personally be responsible for who we are and for how we respond. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You won't appear for anybody else. Nobody else will appear before you. You'll stand there and give an account of the stewardship of your days. How will it be? What if it was this, this afternoon? How would it go? The boasting we want to take is in the grace of God that transforms broken people and makes them acceptable to God. Not on our own merits, but in the merits of this Savior who's laid hold of us by the Spirit of God. Is Graceland different than Heartland? Let's think back through these verses. Graceland is home to grace, healing, and restoration. There are three imperatives here that will provide the outline for these verses. There's an imperative in verse 1, a command. An imperative in verse 2, a command. An imperative in verse 4, that'll be the outline. Graceland is permeated by three postures. Let's think of them. By the way, this paragraph, these five verses, is the New Testament answer to Cain's question in Genesis chapter 4. Am I my brother's keeper? The Apostle Paul says, absolutely, we are our brother's keeper. And we are so committed to our brothers and so committed to our sisters that when we fall down, we have a response. And it is not petty, critical judgment. It is running in with barrels of grace, pouring it out, inviting them to go forward. What are the three postures that permeate Graceland? Posture number one is in verse one. We must restore the broken. The spiritual, what do they do? Who are the spiritual among us? They are the ones who get in the ditch and restore the broken. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, notice, anyone, any transgression, you who are spiritual. What marks a person who's spiritual? Lives above everybody else? Is the holier than thou? Not at all. It's the person who's rolling up their sleeves, humbled by their own sin, in the ditch with the person who's fallen down, arm in arm, getting back up and getting them on the way. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Luther said this, run into him and reaching out your hand, raise him up again. Comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. Is that us at Calvary? Is that who we are? Does that spirit affect how we approach others, the fallen? It, he uses a beautiful verb here. It's the word restore. It's the verb used in Mark 1.19 for repairing the nets. When all the fishermen around Galilee would lay their nets out, they would restore them to pristine condition before the season of fishing would start. And they would mend 
every broken piece of string. The word at its heart means to set back in its pristine original condition. It was a word used of doctors in the first century who would set bones. They would set those bones right back in the place where they should be and that have been affected by the break. Put back in mint condition. Growing up, at one point, we had five drivers in the house, and uh, we, we, we had five cars. The insurance man loved us, and uh, the car repairman loved us because all of them were super high-mileage vehicles. In fact, one of our goals as a family was to get to a million miles within the five cars we had. We had several racing past 200,000. Know, we were cheering for them all, but uh, one of them died before we could get there. You know, We didn't make it. But I remember, I, I was 13 years old, son had the car, and he went around a curb and hit some gravel, spun out and went through a fence and busted the window out and ripped the mirror off and tore all the trim off the side of the car. Well, it's not, you, 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 when the car's 13 years old, it's got 200,000 miles on it, you know, who cares? But it was real dependable. It was like a Sherman tank. I'm glad he was in it. An 89 Acura legend. And uh, so... I took it to my uncle's garage. Now, this is the uncle I've told you about before. He's the guy who's taken pieces of trash in the garage, shut the garage door, and like uh, nine months later and a whole lot of money, you get this unbelievable, pristine muscle car. It looks, just looks an amazing shape. I mean, he's, he's just a magician. I said, Bob, can you help me? You know, so I, I got a window, and, you know, we tore the door apart and put the window back in and got it hooked up with a mechanism going up and down. I got a mirror, stuck it on, got all the wires on so you could turn it. And it was even the uh, only car I ever had had a heater in, in, the, uh, um, in the mirror. That was cool because if it gets all fogged up with uh, 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 ice ring, just turn, you know, so I tried to get everything all hooked up. We got it up. And so we got everything back, and the car was beat up. And then the trim was off. But the trim was off in such a cankered way that, you know, this was no easy fix. All the hosel for everything was torn off. But all we did, you know, I, 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 out of the ditch, I picked up all the trim, and I just threw it in the trunk. So we're standing there looking at it, and he says, I got an idea. I go, you do? What are we going to do? You know, how is this going to be? He goes, let's do this. So he goes over. He's just laughing. He gets out five metal screws. <laughs> he said, burr, burr. we just screwed the trim back into the door. I mean, if you're going 40 miles down the road, it, it, it looked quasi-normal. If you stop at a stoplight, you think, what's wrong with those people? Why would you drive a car like that? That's terrible. What's wrong with those people? We did not restore it back to mint condition. Five metal screws to put the trim back on the car. That's not mint condition. That's not what this verb is. This verb at its heart is so beautiful. It's to put it back in its original glory and position. And I'll tell you, our indulgence dismantles us. The wages of sin is death. And it brings us in a debilitating way. It is dehumanizing. And the glory of God's grace and the wonder of restoration is we're brought back to life. And it's put back in original condition. And God's grace is that good. And that's the work of those who are spiritual. And what's before us this morning is, is it the work of Calvary Baptist Church? Is that who we are or not? Are, is this harsh land? Or is this grace land? He talks about the manner of restoration. Did you note that verb, that adjective that he used? Uh, you who are spiritual should restore them. Okay, well, how do we do that? What's the manner that we exercise as we restore them? In a spirit of 
gentleness. Who are the great restorers, Eric? It's the gentle among us. The harsh, the critical, the judgmental. They're not good candidates for restorers, but all the gentle. And we've seen this term before. It's a part of the fruit of the Spirit that shows up in 521, or it shows up in 523. Gentleness. The Spirit of God. God treating us gently, giving us not what we deserve. This is the Spirit. This is how we do it. It's the key trait for facilitating restoration, gentleness. Can we make the grade here at Calvary? This is that good old-fashioned TLC, tender, loving care. If you've ever been with one, and I know that several of you have, one weeping in regret, one weeping in shame, one lamenting with mind-numbing reruns, the guilt of it all, and all to bring them to Jesus and to have his grace swallow all of that up and return and restore him to an original position. Oh, the wonder of the grace of God. It's only done by the gentle, a spirit of gentleness. Graceland is a gentle place. It doesn't mean we don't tell folks the truth. At the self-same time, it is possible to tell somebody the truth and be gentle. And God requires both of us. And we tell them the truth as we realize our own vulnerability. Did you notice it says, watch out, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. One of Satan's evil tricks is somebody will fall on their face, somebody runs down in the ditch after him, and in the midst of trying to do it, Satan says, this is a prime opportunity to get next to this rescuer and mess with their conscience and their mind and their heart. More than one person, and persons greater than us, have gone in the ditch to help somebody else, only to be overcome by a similar fault in the ditch as Satan sideswipes them in the midst of the restoration. We must restore the broken. Second command is in verse 2. We must bear each other's burdens. Remember, these people were big on the law. Hey, we want to keep the law. So here's what he says. Hey, you want to keep the law? Keep the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Bear each other's burden. The law of love is the law of Christ, and in the law of Christ, we bear each other's burdens. Now, here's the open secret. We pretend otherwise. The open secret is everybody here this morning and everybody online has a burdened heart. Everybody here this morning, not the same, but everybody's fighting battles. They are not the same battles, but we all have burdens. And here's Paul. Here's Graceland, bear each other's burdens. Now, it assumes that everybody has them. The other thing it assumes is we are not so proud as to not share them. The proud person tries to go it alone. Christianity is a team sport. It's not a solo event. We bear one another's burdens. It's the proud person that seeks to bear their burdens alone. Don't bear your burdens alone. We love you. We want to bear your burdens with you. We don't have all the answers, but we have a sufficient Savior. We don't have all the answers, but we know what the grace of God does to a person who lays hold of it, and that's where we're headed. Go with us. We want you to go with us. We need to share our burdens with each other. Are you a loner? God never intended for you to bear your burden alone. 
There are no superhero Christians. We're all weak and frail, and that's okay. Because in the gentleness of Graceland, we bear each other's burdens, and we go forward. By the way, self-pity and self-focus makes you a really bad burden bearer. Some of us are living under the pile of our burdens so deeply, we can't even see that people right next to us are bleeding out with burdens that we are unaware with, unaware of because we're so self-focused and captured by ourselves. By the way, Satan caters every pity party for ourselves that we host. But what's amazing is even if we're passing through darkness and a discouragement, and who doesn't in a broken world, if we pick up our heads and see somebody else and reach for them, there's something enlivening to our own spirit that happens to us. Bear each other's burdens. Please note it's the burden of sin and isn't that life's greatest burden that God took care of on Good Friday? There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Do you know Christ as your Savior this morning? Have you found safe harbor underneath the cross of Christ where he shed his blood so our sin could be forgiven? Once and for all dealt with there. He said it's finished. And if it's finished and we faced it, it's finished. And we can get around people and pour grace on it. The burden of sin is hard. It's hard work. Robert Kellerman has written a lot about biblical counseling. And one of his metaphors that's quite cryptic is that uh, the, per the people helper has to get in the casket of the other person. That's quite a cryptic metaphor. Because the wages of sin is death, and our indulgence brings us to death, sucks the life out of us, but it's the burden bearer who gets there, picks the person up, and helps them forward. Martin Luther said, therefore, Christians must have strong shoulders and mighty bones. How are your bones? How are our bones and shoulders at Calvary? Larry Crabb said, he died this week uh, in a former generation, uh, wrote stuff about psychological Christian counseling. He said this. The most important tool of counseling is not di diagnostic method, but authentic friendship. Do you have any friends bearing your burdens? You say, Eric, what's your life groups about? What's that for? That's for more intimate contact and awareness of burdens that we face so we can bear them with each other. How are your shoulders? What, are, what is our reach biblical counseling other than a burden-bearing God-restoring attempt to help people in the congregation. Do you need encouragement? Do you need help? We want to be that to you. Quietly, confidentially, we can face that through reach. Finally, we must examine ourselves. That's verses 4 and 5. Let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Watch keeping of ourselves is stress. Keeping watch in verse 1. Take care of yourself, verses 4 and 5. We need to exercise judgment, yes, but on ourselves, not on others. All conceit must be laid aside. Remember how it's gumming things up in 526. 
all have the responsibility to steward our lives. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Are you prepared for that day? What's Graceland like, Eric? People are restored. We bear each other's burdens. And we responsibly steward our own lives as we give ourselves to the Lord. I love reputations for repu- I, I love reputations for restoration. Whether it's the Shepherd Center in Atlanta for spinal cord injury or any sort of restoration. In 1951, the Ohio State University hired Woody Hayes as their football coach. He was there for 27 years. In that 27-year period, he won five national championships and had a Hall of Fame career. And in these 20 seconds, he lost his job. Schleister looks at Donnelly. Throws it short. It's intercepted. Charlie Bowman, the middle guard, intercepted it. Schleister looked into the middle of the short man, and he threw it right in Bowman's hands. The first turnover by Ohio State. Charlie Bowman lives in Cincinnati. One of you told me you knew him. I couldn't remember this week who it is. He was a nose guard for uh, Clemson. That was a bowl game. 27 years in, Woody Hayes indulged himself in passion and lost his job. Howard Hendricks was a chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys, coached then by uh, Hall of Fame coach Tom Landry, devoted follower of Jesus Christ. He was on the board at Dallas Theological Seminary until his death, a wonderful Christian man who used his faith to influence others for Christ. And Howie would go to practice because he was a chaplain and he, would, he knew the coaching staff. He knew a lot of the players. It was, provided a platform for ministry. And he went to practice one year in 1978 as they had come back from camp and they're getting ready for the season to start. And he looks out there and he says, good night, they got a new coach. Not a familiar face to me. I don't even know who that is. So he watches the guys working with linemen. He's getting down in the, you know, three-point position and teaching him how to fire out and talking about leverage. and That's pretty impressive. And he went over to Coach Lander and he says, hey, Coach, did you get a new coach this year? To which he replied, no. We just invited that man to be with us for a season. That man was Woody Hayes, who at that point was a pariah. But Tom Landry knew enough about what grace means to people who are broken so as to reach for him to try to reclaim him. Now, I love that story. The church is supposed to be full of that, those stories. And that's what Paul's getting at. So how is it? Is this grace land or harsh land? And what part are you playing in making it a restoration center for our Lord Jesus Christ? Father, Help us see who we really are. Help us be moved by your enablement to who we need to be. Pour grace on us even this morning. Deliver us from judgmentalism. Deliver us from being critical of each other. Deliver us from pride. And help us humble ourselves before you. Receive your grace. And then gently help others to you. 
and restore them. All grace of God, Lord, meet it out to us today afresh. And Father, I pray in particular for those who might be tuned in or might be here this morning. They need to be restored. Thank you that your grace is available. Now speak and work in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name.